This will be a sign for you. This is one of those wonderful stories that we hear every Christmas, and this is our fifth of the stories that we have been pondering in this uh, series I've called The Journey to Bethlehem, this, this effort for, for us to, to hear afresh these so familiar words. I have in mind uh, my own experience of, of arriving on Christmas Eve and hearing these nativity stories, and, and I'm, my, my, my mind is filled with the tensions of the day, of the week, of the month, and, and I've heard them so many times, and I'm, I'm paying attention uh, more to the behavior of my children and to the concerns I have about what we'll do after uh, the church service is over, and so these words are spoken, and I hardly hear them because I don't need to listen to them because I know them so well. And uh, I hope that if you've experienced anything like that, this series has helped you to hear these words afresh, hear them in a new way, and even be uh, simultaneously challenged and comforted by them. That's the goal of this series. As we've been going on, I've been uh, trying to do two things, really. One, to help you hear them afresh in some new way. And, and, and also, each time, I hope that you're learning something new, something you didn't know before as we dig into the archaeology, uh, the context of these stories, and consider what the gospel artists were trying to portray for us by including these stories where they did and how they did. So let's first talk about the setting of our story. We've talked about this a bit already, uh, Bethlehem. One important archeological element that is only implicit in our story is the Herodium. The Herodium is uh, something that's quite well known. It stands in the hills of Bethlehem and looks southeast toward the Dead Sea. And as you can see, the view is dominated by this massive fortress. It was an enormous fortress and palace built by Herod the Great, who died just at, you know, near the birth of Jesus, a little bit after Jesus was born. He was the Roman puppet king known as the King of the Jews. It's just three miles from Bethlehem on a straight line of sight across the plain below the hills. It, it dominates the view from Bethlehem towards Jerusalem. And first century Jews would have connected it with Bethlehem because it was the summer palace for King Herod. And a traveler from Jerusalem had to go through Bethlehem to get to the Herodium. Now, the Herodium was so grand, so famous, that the name Bethlehem would have evoked thoughts of the Herodium in the minds of a first century Jew, because that was the only significant landmark near Bethlehem that everyone knew. Now, as a symbol, the Herodium represented the awesome military might of the king of the Jews. But to most Jews in the first century, and particularly to the Pharisee, the Pharisee party, Herod was a usurper king. He wasn't in King David's line, the psalm that we just read that spoke of this promise to David and that David would, would, would reign, his, his line would reign. Uh, well, Herod was not part of that line. He was Arabian. He was descended from Esau, you remember, not from his brother Jacob, not from the one who gave us the family Israel. He was the puppet of the great oppressor, Rome. 
And his kingship also ensured that the temple, the, the temple in Jerusalem, was run by an oligarchy of illegitimate priests who were not part of the family of Aaron, a group who usurped the temple control after the Hasmonean, uh, in the Hasmonean Empire, after the Maccabean Revolt in 140 BC. So the Herodians' four towers rising above the valley near Bethlehem was a monument. It was a reminder, an ever-present reminder to the Jews that things were not as God intended, that imposters presided on the throne and also in the temple, that God still did not rest with God's people. Now, the key, key thing in, in this is the contrast that Luke now paints for us. As we discussed last week, Jesus was born in Bethlehem because of Caesar Augustus, the emperor of Rome, whose coins called him the son of God and whose propaganda machine, as, as articulated in the cult of the emperor in the temples, named him savior of the world and whose, whose uh, monuments named him the prince of peace, the guarantor of the world's peace, the, the author of Pax Romana. Mary and Joseph, as you recall, went to Bethlehem to be registered so that they might be taxed suitably by the apparent king of the world. And as a result, Jesus was born just three miles in the sh away in the shadow of the Herodium, that massive fort and palace from which King Herod, the puppet king of Rome, known as the king of the Jews, could see all the way to modern day Jordan. It's a, it's the, is a place where he could see any approaching armies coming from the direction of Rome. Any attacking armies would be visible at a great range. But notice the irony. Herod could see all the threats at a distance, but he couldn't see the stealth operation that God was conducting right underneath his nose, right there in Bethlehem. Now, Luke reports Jesus' birth in just two sentences. He says, Mary gave birth and wrapped him in bands of cloth and laid him in a feeding trough, for there was no room at the Cataluma. Now, as I mentioned last week, due to excessive exposure um, to Christmas propaganda, to, to Christmas pageants and carols and greeting cards. Most of us probably imagine something like that old Bob, ha Bob Hope skit that I mentioned last week in which Mary and Joseph pull up on, at a Holiday Inn with a big no vacancy sign flashing. But scholars today notice that, uh, that the word Cataluma means guest room in Luke's usage. And archaeological and literary evidence show that houses in Bethlehem and in its vicinity often had stables inside the house, usually inside the cave, where the family would keep their animals while the guest room, which is on the second floor, um, uh, was in the front of the house where it was sunnier. The animals, as well as the family, stayed under one large enclosed space that was divided so that the animals would usually be on a lower level while the family would sleep on a raised upper level. 
And as we mentioned there, you can see the, the feeding trough. A manger is a feeding trough, and it's a concave space that they would scoop out of the rock. In this case, it would be limestone, uh, but they, they'd scoop it out of the rock to hold food for the animals. Now, I mentioned this last week, but this week I want to talk about it in a little bit different way. The, the significant thing is to recognize that Jesus was born in what is the equivalent today in our time of a garage. Think about that. A donkey or an ox would have been kept there overnight, and the animals would have fueled themselves by eating out of the manger. Now, that reminds me of our uh, of our emerging world in which increasingly we see Teslas and other all-electric cars on the road. If you have one of those things already, one of those all-electric cars, you likely have or will have someday a feeding trough in your garage for your mode of transportation, for your car. Though I think Tesla calls it a home charging station. I guess if we were rewriting this story today, we might say that Mary laid the baby in the space reserved for the home charging station. Jesus was born in the equivalent of a modern garage. The key point here is that the lowliness of it all. There sat Herod, Herod the Great, the illegitimate king of the Jews, sipping martinis in one of the most opulent palaces in all of the Roman Empire, built in the Roman fashion, including Roman baths and all the work. Jesus, who was the real king of the Jews, was born in the garage of a lowly family in a lowly village. Now, Imagine the poorest section of Rochester, you know, and place Jesus in a garage there. That's what Luke is telling us. And in case we miss this point, his point in contrasting Jesus with such royalty, Luke gives us more. He paints the motif of the shepherds, not just any shepherds, but the ones who got stuck with the night shift. And Luke tells us that the first people that God tells about what God has done, the first ones whom God tells about the great deliverance that God just performed of that light that now shines in the world are shepherds. Now, what's the significance of that? Well, shepherds were on the opposite end of the social spectrum from King Herod's court. They were about as low as a male could be on the socioeconomic ladder because they lived and slept among animals. They were both literally and ritually unclean. If you've ever met a modern-day shepherd, and I have, that won't surprise you. You see, shepherds, ancient and contemporary, tend to stink, and they're poor, but that's not just it. They were also unwelcome, even, even among their fellow peasants, because they allowed their sheep to graze on other people's land. So imagine this for a second. Imagine that your neighbor trained his, his uh, St. Bernard to go into your garden and take care of his business every day, and you had to clean it up. Or worse, imagine your neighbor had a flock of geese who loved your yard. 
And imagine that while they're in your yard, they help themselves to your broccoli, to your best tomatoes, to your spinach, or in Charlie and Judy's case, to your daylilies. Shepherds were not just the lowliest of the low. They were also the least welcome of the low by their fellow peasants. And it's to such as these to whom God first announced the good news of the king born in a feeding trough. Now, brothers and sisters, one of my favorite songs of praise is Angels We Have Heard on High. But one of the unfortunate things about that song and about all the greeting cards we send out and all our Christmas pageants is that they don't actually attend to what the biblical text actually says. Such images make our story seem like a fairy tale, to me at least. If that includes you, notice that the text says nothing about flying or angels with wings. The English word angel comes directly from a Greek word for messenger. The text literally says, a messenger of the Lord stood before them. Now, in most places in the Bible, the word uh, refers to a messenger who looks just like ordinary people, except that something distinguishes them, sometimes a peaceful or a holy expression or raiment as white as snow, which the Bible does say. Only when we encounter the apocalyptic genre of the Bible, such as in Daniel and Revelation to John, do we see angels described as those glorious winged creatures we see on our greeting cards and in our stained glass windows. In other words, a, a close attention to the text leads you to see a messenger of the Lord who looks like you and me. Since I've never met a winged creature, I'm comforted to know that the messenger of the Lord with whom Jacob wrestled in that dark night of the soul when he, be when he became Israel was simply a stranger who had the appearance of an ordinary man. And what does that messenger of the Lord say? Go look for a babe in a feeding trial. There you will find the one God had sent to deliver all people, all people. This one is the true king, the one anointed by God to be the savior of the world, to be the true Lord of the world, the true king of the world, the true prince of peace. And then we see not just one, but an army of God's messengers praising God and saying, this changes everything. God has acted once and for all to give peace through this babe, this prince of peace, glory to God in the highest. What a beautiful story. Now, how is this babe our savior? I'll just name a few things from what I have per personally witnessed in our lives. How has he saved us? Well, I'm thinking of a woman surviving horrible oppression in an abusive relationship. A brother surviving the sting of death that is divorce. A young, unemployed college grad, all alone, depressed, and filled with despair. An elderly woman. 
touched by the onset of a disease that she cannot understand that takes away, robs her of her consciousness, of her, her ability to think, her, her ability to do the things that she's always been able to do, causing her to be dependent on those she has always served. A young man transformed by the gospel, delivered from an eternal destiny of being a dragon to his wife and family, transformed by the renewing of his mind. Countless people in bondage to addiction, giving them the power to walk away from such slavery. A man devastated by the failure of his business and the apparent end of his career. We hit rock bottom and discover that God is already there with us, lifting us out of the muck, out of the isolation, out of the despair, out of the delusion that we are all alone. He's delivered us from guilt, delivered us from the fear that we might always be alone, forsaken by God. He's delivered us from the fear that there is nothing more to this life than what we see from the fear that our lives will be filled with meaninglessness, that our lives don't matter. He's delivered us from all the things that plague us by declaring such things as powerless to keep us from God's eternal love. And one of the ways he's done that is by calling us to learn the song that these angels sing, by calling us ourselves to become those ordinary, ordinary looking at least, messengers of God. When we feed the poor, when we tell the single mom in concrete ways that she is not alone, when we tell that shivering, lonely man pushing his shopping cart containing all his life's possessions on the street that he is not alone, when we grab the hand of the ones in our family and in our other circles whom others now shun and tell them that we will never abandon them, that we are with them, that they are not alone. When we announce in our words and actions to the shepherds of our time that God has not forsaken you, God has not forgotten you, God loves you and calls you by name. When we sing to the world, Emmanuel, God is with us, and perform that truth by sharing our bread, well, then we join that heavenly host. We become like angels. We fulfill our vocation of being messengers of God sent to announce that truth, that truth of God's decision never to be except to be with his people. Emmanuel, God with us. Luke says, this will be a sign for you. And that sign is the feeding trough. He mentions it three times. Why is that? Why is it that the sign for us is that Mary laid our king to sleep where God's creatures ate? Let's think about that for a moment. Perhaps it means that we, too, will find the food that we long to eat in that feeding trough. For we do not live by bread alone, 
and we remain hungry when we feast merely upon bread that does not satisfy, on water that's not the living water. Now, later that babe would awaken and walk down the Via Dolorosa for us. But before that, he would turn to us and say, I am the bread of life. This is my body given for you. Perhaps the feeding trough is a sign for us because we can't be satisfied by any of the gifts that are now safely wrapped beneath the tree or in our case being transported on snow-covered UPS or Amazon trucks to our home. No, our hunger will only be satiated by that gift wrapped in bands of cloth. Our hunger will only be satiated when we go to that feeding trough and feast. And the way we feast is to say yes. Yes to him. When we say, yes, you are my true king. You are my true savior. You are the love of my life. Only in you do I find my salvation. Deliver me, Prince of Peace. For this will be a sign for you. My prayer this Christmas is that you will ponder this magnificent portrait that Luke has provided in your heart all the way up to Christmas, throughout Christmas tide. And that especially after our 6 p.m. worship service on Christmas Eve, like Zoomified shepherds, you will carry your virtual calendar, candle that is, out into the darkness, sharing that light with the world. And like the shepherds, glorifying and praising God for all you have heard 